And Father in heaven, that's our confession of faith today. That you are able not just to carry me personally through, but to carry each one through that we have mentioned by name in our hearts and minds. Each one that is to our right or to our left that we have lifted up in prayer. And Father, we're asking that whatever healing is needed, that you would bring it about by your mighty power. God, there are tendencies in our lives to self-medicate. There are tendencies in our lives to try to be our own healer. But ultimately, as was said um, earlier in our worship time, God, only you can do it. Only you can make us whole and holy. Only you can make us right and righteous. Only you can save us. Only you can save our friends, our loved ones. And so we're praying today, not because we deserve it, but because you want to give it. Would you please bless us with healing? Please. God, some of us are feeling this need on a very, very deep level for ourselves or for someone else. And so we're asking that as we've prayed for one another, we would experience this salvation that is only by grace through Christ. And so thank you, God, for this time of prayer. Thank you for this house of prayer. And as we dig into the word today, we're asking for the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. We realize that the things of Scripture are are things from you. And so our finite attempts to understand the infinite God, um, they fall short. So we're praying for the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us into all truth. Thank you. In Jesus' saving name, let the family say, Amen. All right. So it is um, a beautiful day. It's, it's funny that it's like the coldest day of the week. Um, and it just happens to be the day that we do outreach. Uh, it always kind of turns out that way, right? <laughs> Rain, snow, shine. We're going to go. We're going to go. Otherwise, Derek has to pass out all of those flyers over there. But I'm just kidding. He's going to be all right. <laughs> We're going to do it together. I am so excited uh, for the Pale Horse Rides. If you saw the trailer, you know that this is going to be an exciting thing. Um, if you haven't registered, go ahead and do it palehorserides.com slash castle rock. Um, some of us here have actually signed up for it, and I'm, I'm excited for that. Uh, but uh, that event is really going to be a special thing. Um, if you want to be part of the team who puts it together, we need greeters. We need people at the registration table. Uh, we need some help in the kids' department. We need some people just to be present, a warm, not just a warm body to look at, but a warm heart to connect with, Okay. Um, so if you want to be there, please come Wednesday night so that we can pray together and just kind of talk through the logistics of that. Uh, excited about that. I'm so thankful for opportunities to serve God. And I'm thankful for the ladies, the young ladies uh, who are here leading us in worship and using their gifts. I'm so thankful for that. Um, I want you to know that when it comes to Castle Rock Church, what, we're, what we hope to see is each one of us taking next steps, not just in our pursuit of Jesus, but in our pursuit to share Jesus with others. And so as you have gifts, use them for God's glory. And I hope and pray that you find joy in doing that. All right. I see a big smile on Amy's face. Amy, thank you so much. Yeah. Joy in serving the Lord. Hey, so today we're in part three, part three of our series, The Roots of the Reformation. Um, This is, I don't know if you know this, October 31 is a special day for many reasons apart from what, uh, what you see on people's homes and things like that. It's not just Halloween. October 31 is actually a very special day in Christian history. 
October 31, 1517, exactly 500 years ago, there was a man named Martin Luther who lived in Wittenberg, Germany. And upon the castle church's door, he posted this document that's known as the 95 Theses that really shook the Christian world at the time. It shook it in a good way. It caused some, some thought to be stirred, thought that had already been stirred and now is vocalized in a very special way. And that was, I guess you could say it was formally the beginning of what's known as the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation. So um, if you're looking for something to celebrate this October 31, this is what our family calls it. It's Reformation Day. It's Reformation Day. And so last week, you know, this whole week or this whole month, we've been going through this series, Roots of the Reformation. Last week, we looked at the deformation of the Christian church. The deformation that even led to the need for a Christian reformation. And we discovered that the, the roots of the deformation, the things that kind of led to Christianity's crumble, were essentially two things. One, the disregard of God's word and the exaltation of self in God's place. And then the week before that, we studied what Martin Luther heard as he was kneeling, that very pious monk, as he was kneeling and climbing Pilate's staircase on pilgrimage, so to speak. He heard this, this resounding voice in his heart that was quoting scripture from Romans chapter 117, and it says, The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And so that was what we looked at when we began our series, that really when it comes to salvation and forgiveness, it is not something that is gained, but it's something that is given. It's not something that is earned, but it's something that is received. The just shall live by faith. And so today, we're going to take a look at another root of the Reformation, and that is the root of embracing God's word. Embracing God's word. You see, the essential teachings that Martin Luther articulated in those 95 theses, the essential teachings that he, he expressed in, in many of his other writings, you know, uh, faith alone, in Christ alone, uh, through grace alone, all, all of these things could only be arrived at as he looked at Scripture as his ultimate authority, as he looked at the Bible as his ultimate authority. In fact, let me just share this quote as we get kind of into our topic this morning. This is from a book called The Reformation and the Remnant, written by uh, Nicholas Miller. He's a professor at Andrews University. He says this, talking about Martin Luther's beliefs, he says, his beliefs about Christ, grace, and faith stood on the foundation provided by another doctrine, One that allowed him to pierce the medieval facade. Martin Luther lived in the late 1400s, early 1500s. So just kind of put yourself in his world. One that allowed him to pierce the medieval facade. What was that doctrine? The doctrine of the supreme authority of what? Of Scripture. The doctrine of the supreme authority of Scripture. The monk's feet were firmly planted on the foundation of sola scriptura. That's Latin for Scripture alone. Allowing him to develop the other sola doctrines. Sola fide, sola gratis, sola Cristo. That's faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. Are you following that? Yeah? Okay. He, speaking of Martin Luther, he recognized that without sola scriptura, these other doctrines were vulnerable to being defined and compromised by church tradition and papal teaching. Are you following the train of thought? That all these other doctrines about who Christ is and what faith is and how we're saved by grace, all of these, without this foundation of Scripture alone, would be vulnerable to being interpreted or skewed by other people's opinions. Okay, The customary opinion, church tradition, uh, things of that nature. And so for Martin Luther, 
the Bible was everything. Without the truth and validity of the scripture, then everything was up for interpretation. You may remember some stories in the Old Testament about the judges, and it says this in Judges. It says that uh, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. (laughs) In other words, when you have no authority, when you have no guiding post, you know, everything's up for grabs. We can do what, or teach whatever we want. And, and so Martin Luther really recovered this. But he wasn't the only one, and nor was he the first one. Martin Luther wasn't the first to recover this essential doctrine. And today I want to uh, talk about two of these guys that lived before Martin Luther. One of them, his name was John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe lived nearly 150 years. He was born nearly 150 years prior to Martin Luther showed up. John Wycliffe, he was born in England, born in 1330. He was one of the brightest minds of the 14th century, a teacher, a professor at Oxford University. He actually taught philosophy. He was a philosophy professor turned theologian. He he began to realize that, man, the greatest things that I can put my mind to were scripture, okay? And so this bright mind, he became a deep student of scripture, and the more he studied, the more he realized that the Christian church had fallen far from its ideal. The more he studied, whoa, wait, the the church that Jesus established in the book of Acts, you know, those kinds of things, we're not seeing this in our present time. And Wycliffe, when he lived in England, there was a growing sentiment. There was a growing resistance against the established church, you could say. A resistance that saw the discrepancy between what they sensed to be true and what the church was exerting as its influence. And so even though there is this growing resistance in England, the people of England actually felt powerless. They felt helpless to do anything about it. And you, you read this history and you kind of have to ask, you, ask yourself, why is it that the, that the people who felt that there was a need for change didn't feel that they had the power to change it? And I found this um, in, an, in a biography about John Wycliffe. It says this, speaking of the people of England, it says, enveloped in ignorance and sunk in social degradation and vice, they had not the scripture, to enlighten their path. The Bible was a sealed book. Freedom of conscience was denied. And the religion of of the country consisted in outward ceremonials appealing to the senses, but not influencing what? The heart. Have you ever been there? Going through the motions, but it's not coming from a spirit of true and honest devotion. And and this this biography is actually uh, attributing it to the fact that they had not the scripture to enlighten their path. Somehow the Bible, uh, the absence of the Bible created this, this darkness. And so the Bible in England of John Wycliffe's time was literally inaccessible. Uh, people didn't have the, the Bible in their pockets like we do. You know, the, they don't have the apps. They didn't have it on the internet. You know, this picture that we see in the background, I don't know if people in 13, 14, uh, hundreds of England, if they saw someone walking around with this, would they recognize Would they recognize, oh, that's the Holy Bible? No. This was a time in which the Bible was completely absent from their consciousness. They had no idea. There was inaccessible, it was an inaccessible, um, an inaccessible reality. Sorry. And um, what's interesting is that not only was it inaccessible physically, it was inaccessible linguistically. The Bible that was available It was somewhere in someone's chambers far, far away. But even when you got to it physically, it was written in a language that you wouldn't be able to understand. It was written uh, in Latin. That's how it was preserved uh, most generally. 
In fact, um, by the time of John Wycliffe, translating the Bible into a common language, or the term that was used was a vulgar language, like English, was actually, what was it? It was actually heresy that was punishable by death, according to church law. I mean, just think for a moment. What would it mean to you if you could not own a Bible? What would it mean to you if, if the Bible was not even available to you in your own language? That if you wanted to hear the Bible, you would hear someone be speaking it in Swahili or whatever, you know, whatever the case might be. And you're like, that sounds like it could be cool, but I have no idea what that's all about. Can you, can you imagine? I don't, I don't even think we can begin to imagine the kind of vacuum and void that we would feel without the guidance of God's word. And that's what it was like in Wycliffe's England. Today it's on our shelves. Today it's on our phones. It's in our pockets. It's, uh, you know, it's on posters and things like that. But the reality is that in John Wycliffe's time, that was not the case. That was not the case. And there's a sad reality that Proverbs 29 verse 18 shares with us. It says that where there is no vision, the people, what? What's their experience? They perish. When the King James says where there is no vision, it's talking about prophetic vision. When there is no divine revelation from God. When there is no understanding, like this is God's clear will. When there is no vision, the people perish. Other versions say the people cast off restraint. They just kind of go crazy. And really, we go into self-destruct mode. The reality is that when we're cut off from the word, we are cut off from life. That was John Wycliffe's England, 1300s, 1400s. The thing is that from the very beginning of time, the word of God has been life to us. From the very first page of scripture, it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 3, it says, God said, let there be what? Light. And there was light. You see, life begins with God's very word. The Word is life. I want you to take your Bible if you have one with you. If you don't, um, maybe peek over the shoulder of someone who does. This is, let's go to the Gospel of John. I want us to look at just a few verses here in the Gospel of John. Because John makes this case, this strong case, that the Word of God is life. You may not realize this. Uh, so John is the fourth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John. John is actually... One of four biographies, one of four Gospels written on the life of Jesus. And it was the last Gospel to be written on Jesus' life. Um, The other Gospels were written around the 50s, 60s AD. John wrote his nearly 30 years later, 90-something AD. John was actually the last living apostle of Jesus, okay? The last of the twelve. And so you can imagine that for first century believers who are following Jesus, they, they probably loved, I mean, would you like to hear Peter talk about the stormy sea and how he walked on it, you know? I mean, wouldn't you like to hear the disciples actually describe, yeah, when I was at that wedding, I saw water, but then when he poured it out, it was, what? You know, all of these things. So here's John. He's the last of the living disciples who had seen Jesus, heard Jesus, you know, walked and talked with Jesus. And as he's writing to believers who are realizing that John is on his way out, the people are, are kind of at this crossroads. They're at this transition point where they're realizing that, okay, is this legit? Is this real? How do I know it's real? How is this going to perpetuate, not just in the first century AD, but in the second and third and fourth, etc.? Do you, do you feel kind of the, the, the situation there? And so John, when he chooses to write the Gospel of John, and then the first John, the second John, the third John, etc., 
When he chooses to write these things, he is writing with a very specific purpose that what we pass on is going to keep going. That what we pass on is going to be life to you. So you're with me in John chapter 1. So notice how John just kind of perpetuates this idea that the word of God is life. John chapter 1, and we're just going to kind of flip through the Gospel of John to three or four different verses. Chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. If you're there, say, I'm there. Awesome. Here we go. In the beginning, I'm reading from the New King James Version. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was who? Was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Okay, reflecting or referring back to the creation story. All things were made through him. That is the word, right? And without him, nothing was made that was made. Verse 4. In him. Remember, in him, that's, that's the word. That's Jesus. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. John is making it clear from the very beginning that the word is life. In the word you have life. In the revelation of Jesus, you have life. And that life is the light of man. Flip over to chapter 5. John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 24. When you're there, say, I found it. All right. John chapter 5, verse 24. The Bible says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into what? Into life, all right? And who is this true of? He who hears my, my word. When we hear God's word, it results in life. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. To the next chapter, John chapter 6. This is a powerful chapter. We were looking at this story, or at least part of this chapter, in our small group study at, at home on Tuesday night. And you just see throughout even this entire chapter just how, how clear. Like, God wants his will to be known through his word, and this gives us life. So go to John chapter 6, verse 63 especially. John chapter 6, verse 63. This verse is one of the first verses that I, you know, when I first started to read the Bible for myself, um, verse 63 was one of the first ones that just kind of seared itself into my memory. John 6, 63. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. In other words, you know, if we, if we want to live, it's not dependent upon my, you know, my physicality, my strength, my umph. It's God's Spirit. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And then he says this, The words that I speak to you are what? Are Spirit, and they are life. You want to experience the life-giving power of Jesus? He says, hey, here are my words. Yeah? The very same word that said, let there be light, can speak light and salvation into our hearts today. It is a spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and are life. Now, just further on down into verse 66, it says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. There were certain things that Jesus was sharing that day that were hard and difficult sayings, kind of hard to chew on, so to speak. And there were a lot of people, a big multitude that were following him. They saw his miracles, all this kind of stuff. But when they heard his teachings, it, some of it didn't jive with their natural inclinations. And so there were people that, interestingly enough, in John 6, 66, 
it says that many ta- from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. But notice verse 67. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? Jesus turns to those that are closest to him and says, hey guys, there's the door. If you feel like this is too hard, if this word doesn't jive with your heart, there's the door. Do you want to go away? And I love what Peter says. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of what? Of eternal life. Jesus, where else are we going to find the word of God? You're it. And then in verse 69, also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, throughout history, throughout redemptive sto- the redemptive story, from beginning to end, God's word has always been life to God's people. God's word has always been life to his people. And so it, it makes sense that the enemy of God's people, the enemy of God, Satan, the, the, the accuser of the brother, his scheme is to rob us of that life-giving word. His scheme has always been to oppose God's word. How does he do it? He opposes God's word by replacing God's word, not just saying, hey guys, the Bible is no good. You know, he doesn't just like wear a sign around his neck saying, don't read the Bible. What he does is he opposes God's word by replacing God's word. Not by blatant opposition, but by subtle substitution. How does he do this? By by incremental shifts from focusing not just on what God has said, but what others have said God has said. Whoa, Whoa. what's going on? What's going on? Go with me to Matthew 15. Jesus kind of picked up on this tendency even uh, in his day. He realized what was going on. The religious leaders of his day, well-meaning individuals, right? In Matthew chapter 15, he recognized this tendency and he rebuked it. Matthew chapter 15. So this is the first book of the New Testament. If you're there, say amen. Amen. All right, verse 3. He's answering the religious leaders. He has this discussion because they've asked him a question. And in verse 3, he answered them and said, Why do you also transgress the commandment of who? The commandment of God because of your what? Tradition. Ooh, buddy. All right, he's getting straight with it, right? And he's, he begins to explain how they do this. Like, God says this, but then you say, well, let's get around it. Okay? And in verse, uh, verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 6. Uh, no, no, no. Verse 7. <laughs> he uses this strong word. He says, hypocrites. Literally, the Greek term means actors. All right? You're putting up a front. Hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of who? The commandments of man. Whoa. The subtle shift. The subtle shift, right? The teachings of men, the commandments of men have somehow, even in the religious leaders' lives, they've somehow replaced the very word and commandments of God. This is the tendency that Jesus recognized. This is the tendency that Jesus rebuked. But in the New Testament, in the early church, as uh, you know, the, the gospel is being spread to different peoples and different lands, man, they are making it a point. Don't listen just to the words of men. Listen to the word of God. There's a really awesome verse here in Acts 17, verse 11. One of the towns that, that Paul the Apostle went to on one of his missionary journeys, he had just left this area called Thessalonica. Okay, Just, just keep that in a, in a shelf in your mind. He had left the town of Thessalonica and gone to Berea. 
And it says this about those Berean believers. It says, now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For what reason? They received the message with great eagerness and examined what? The scriptures. How often? Every day to see if what Paul said was true. Now, Paul was an awesome preacher. Paul was an awesome... I don't know if you realize this, but in one town that he went to, there were some people who thought, oh man, this must be a Greek god because of the way he preaches. Okay, Paul, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe he had a good build too, but he, he, was, a, he was a preacher. And they, they heard this message. No matter what kind of eloquent teachings you hear, friends, you are more noble-minded when you receive that message and examine the scriptures to see whether that is so. Do you follow that? I mean, yeah, you, you might hear good teaching. You might hear good truisms from the pulpit. You might hear good things on the radio. But if you don't examine the scriptures to see, okay, wait, am I just going to trust what, what, what he has said or what she has said? Or am I going to base my, my belief and practice upon what the word of God says? The Bible calls that noble-minded, um, of more noble character. I like that. I'm talking about character earlier today. Anyways, so, so here we are. Preachers may be great and eloquent, but the word of God is our source of authority, which is why when we are preaching, you know, the New Testament says, preach the word. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Very simple. Preach the word. This is, what, this is the only thing that is true. This is the only thing that people need. Why? Because the word is life. The word is life. And in the 1300s and 1400s in, in England, John Wycliffe, he saw the need to restore this idea, this concept of, of letting our faith and practice be built not just on what people say God has said, but on what God has actually said. John Wycliffe saw this need to recover the priority of the Bible's authority, and so he started to write. He started to write significant publications, significant works, and um, they were taking aim at the church's abuse of authority and especially of its failure to uphold the scripture as, as the final word of, uh, of faith and practice. The most significant work that he wrote was the translation of the English Bible. That was Wycliffe. That was John Wycliffe. The, the only reason that you and I <laughs> can actually read this thing is in large part due to the work of John Wycliffe, who said, you know what? We, we can't just rest with what other people say that God's word says. We need to know what God's word says. Making the word of God accessible to the common person back then in the 14th century, that was a huge deal. It empowered people to submit themselves, not just to the authority of a church, but to the authority of God's word. It empowered people to be free, not just from the, what other people have said, but from what it, it freed them to surrender to what God has said. So his writings, it was huge impact, huge impact on us today, but it had a huge impact on, on influence on people who God was raising up to be reformers in that time. There was another reformer. His name was Jan Hus. He was from Bohemia. We know it today as John Hus. He, he, was from, he lived from 1369 to 1415. He lived in Bohemia, which is uh, in the Czech Republic. It was kind of in the little northwest of Prague. If you know your geography, I, I had to kind of brush up on that. But in, in Hus's context, it was a little bit different. It wasn't that, actually, when, when he w- kind of arrived on the scene in Bohemia, um, the Bible and public worship was actually conducted in the Bohemian tongue. I mean, he was at an advantage in that time. But during his, his, uh, his ministry there in Bohemia, um, 
the church actually exercised some unlawful authority, so to speak. And it was during John Huss's time that, uh, that public worship in the Bohemian tongue was actually forbidden. That reading the Bible in the Bohemian tongue, that was forbidden. And as the power of the church was abused, the word of God was obscured. One day, it's recorded that uh, John Huss, he, he went into Prague, the capital city of the Czech Republic. He went into Prague and he found these two paintings. Apparently, these two traveling, traveling painters had uh, kind of displayed these two arts of work right next to each other. One was a painting of, of this very ornate and elaborate procession of, of the Bishop of Rome. You know, like almost treated like a king. The, this church leader was, you know, in this painting was depicted as coming into town with royalty, uh, decorated, decorated and things like this. But then the very next painting right next to it was a picture of Jesus walking into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And these painters, these traveling, traveling painters in Prague just kind of set these up. And, and John Huss saw these two paintings. And he saw the contrast. He saw the authority of church leaders in his day that was totally taken to unhealthy extremes. And then he saw Jesus, the one, the one that they supposedly represented, the one that he supposedly represented, meek and mild, riding on a donkey, born in a manger, Right? walking the dusty roads of Palestine. And this bothered him. (laughs) It impressed him. And it moved him to become vocal. You you see where this is going? So John Huss, he he realized, okay, wait a minute, something's not right. And so with great zeal, um, it's said that he thundered against the corruption of the authority of the church. <laughs> he, he, he became more vocal. He, he became a, a, a proponent of just kind of bringing light to the abuses and the corruption of the church's hierarchy and le- leadership in misrepresenting Christ. And yet, the strange thing that he experienced was that he found himself very loyal to this church that he disagreed with. And this was a great source of tension, and, and it was like a, a serious personal dilemma he found himself in this tension where he believed in the authority of the established church at the time. He believed in the authority that it was God-given authority, and yet his conscience compelled him to resist it. His conscience compelled him to disobey it because it was taken to unhealthy extremes and abuses. His question on his mind was, how could this be if that church's authority had claimed to be infallible? Right? Infallible meaning um, never wrong, okay? Never in the wrong. How could this be if that authority was supposedly infallible? And his conclusion was simply this, that the relig- just like the religious leaders of Christ's day, that the human leaders were using their lawful authority for unlawful ends. They were using their lawful authority for unlawful ends. So, so here's, here's John Huss, and he says, okay, wait, if they're using this God-given authority to human-centered ends or for human selfish ambition, then I've got to choose. And so what he chose was to put his full weight not on the wisdom of these human leaders, but on the wisdom of God. There's an interesting quote here um, from James A. Wiley. It says this, This led him, speaking about John Huss, this led him, this whole like, conclusion, like, okay, I believe in the authority of the church, but it's being misused. This led him to adopt for his own guidance and to preach to others for theirs the maxim that the precepts of Scripture conveyed through the understanding are to rule the what? The conscience. I love that. 
In other words, that God speaking in the Bible and not the church speaking through the priesthood is the one infallible guide. Whoa. For his day, this was huge. I mean, we, we read this and we're like, yeah, of course. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to let someone else direct or dictate my conscience. <laughs> but that was something that was so foreign in the 1300s, 1400s. And John Huss stood against that and said, wait, 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 wait. These paintings that I see, this contradiction that I see, this must mean that in truth, I've got to put my full weight on the wisdom and authority of God's word and not on, on the, the word of men. That was John Huss. Eventually, John Huss was denounced as a heretic. He was burned at the stake by that authority that was supposedly infallible. But the flames of his martyrdom, one historian says, the flames of his martyrdom kindled a fire in the church, which threw immense light on the surrounding darkness and the rays of which were not to be so easily extinguished. Awesome, right? I mean, though he was martyred, his testimony continued to, to leave an impactful legacy. In fact, that legacy, um, you know, is really found in the great reformers that, that were raised up thereafter. Every reformer, as they were pointing out errors of the established church, every reformer was only able to see those errors because they saw it in the light of God's word. Friends, do you know how precious this word is? In Psalm 119, uh, oh, sorry, let me, let me quote this. This is just kind of revealing how the Bible um, just blossomed this great reform movement. It says, the great movement that Wycliffe inaugurated, which was to liberate the conscience and the intellect, had its spring in the Bible. Here was the source of that stream of blessing. This was the authority which he urged the people to acknowledge. Because when we do, I love this, Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet, and a light to my path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. Friends, those were dark times. They had no idea what God's will was except what someone said God's will was. That was a very, very dark time. In 2 Peter, another favorite verse of mine, it says that we would do well to pay attention to this sure word of prophecy. And we pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Have, have you ever been in a dark place before? I mean, physically, I think we, we, we all see dark places. I mean, the, the Colorado sky, when the moon is out, it is bright. It is awesome. But when there is no moon, <laughs> Colorado can get pretty dark, I've noticed. But the, 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 when it's a clear sky, the stars do shine brightly. I, I remember it was um, sometime this summer. I think it was like near the end of July. Debbie, the kids, and I, we... We loaded up in the car. We got four bikes, five bodies into the van. And we went out to Dawson's Butte. It's um, just, just south of here, Larkspur area. Um, beautiful trail. If you've never done that, it's a five-mile loop. At least that's what the sign says. No. Uh, it was a five-mile loop. But we, we decided to, beautiful day, to head out on this trail with these bikes. And um, it was poorly timed, <laughs> to say the least. We got to see the sunset halfway on the trail with a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old and bikes. And um, as we're out there, you know, we're enjoying this, and we thought we were more than halfway on the trail as we're eating our sandwiches, watching the sunset. We thought, okay, guys, we got to move it. We got to move it. Unfortunately, that five-mile loop, it's like downhill and then uphill. And so no matter which way you go, you're going downhill and then uphill. <laughs> anyway, so there we were, less than halfway on that loop. 
I thought, okay, let's, let's do this, guys. And so we, we kept going. We kept going. Oh, and night fell. And night fell quick. And I don't know if my kids are listening. Jaden, you remember this. Jaden was um, trying to be positive. We were singing songs, right? This little light of mine, I'm kind of like, stuff like that. Both of our cell phone batteries, they, they went dead, so we didn't have anything. Um, I started telling stories of night hikes that we went on when we were in high school and how our you know, wilderness survival teacher said, no, you don't want your flashlights because you know, your cones and your rods need to adjust it, whatever. Anyways, so we were trying to encourage one another and pretty soon it turned into weeping and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> it was bad. Oh, darkness is not a good thing when you have no light. Soon enough, we got back. It was 9.45, I think, by the time we made it to the van. Jacob, he was riding in the bike seat carrier. Um, he fell asleep, <laughs> so he had no idea how terrible this was for the other, other kids. But um, anyways, I, I just want us to, to, to get a grip that when we sense that there is no light, there is no vision, it is dark. It is dark. The only thing, whether it's the darkness of you know, your physical surroundings, whether it's the darkness of not knowing what path to take, whether it's the darkness of relational dysfunction, whether it's the darkness of your own personal shame and guilt, the darkness of your confusion, the darkness of your helplessness, the darkness of your hopelessness, whatever darkness there is, I tell you, the word of God is light a lamp to your feet. And this is what I found to be in my own personal experience. I referenced it earlier when I started reading the Bible for myself. You know, I grew up in a good home. I grew up in in an area, in a church that supported me. I grew up in in a school that was Christian. I grew up in a family that was godly. And yet, I was going through the motions without true heart devotion. I had the Word of God in school, you know? I had the Word of God taught in classrooms. And yet, for me personally, I never actually cracked open the Bible to read it for myself. And even though I had these great surroundings, I would say that I was living in a dark ages of my own making. I don't know if you can resonate with that at all. But living in a dark ages of your own making is not a good thing until you realize that the Word of God truly is a lamp unto your feet and a light to your path. Oh, the Word of God is life. As a 14-year-old, I remember I was given an assignment, actually, to preach a sermon. <laughs> you know, I was a good kid, so they said, hey, God, we can do it. And so I, I was, okay, yeah. So they gave me some notes, they gave me a Bible, and I started reading, and I started studying, and I realized, what in the world? And I start, John 6, 63, like that verse that we read earlier today, like, it, like fireworks just went off in my heart and my mind and realized the Word of God is not just a book to understand. It is a voice to hear from a living and loving God. And as I started connecting dots, um, a friend of mine, her name was Debbie Phillips at the time. (laughs) We became good friends, and I realized, what? You read the Bible? You have devotions? You actually open up the Bible when you don't have homework? And um, she gave me a journal that Christmas. A journal to start, you know, journaling the thoughts that I was reading as I was reading the Bible. I began to read the Bible, not just as an idea to understand, but to know a God that was real. And I tell you, from that day on, boom, the word has been life and light to me. And I hope that in some sense, 
that you are experiencing this too. As we've kind of talked through this history, the reality is that when we neglect the word of God, we, as, as full and final authority in our lives, we end up filling the void. We end up filling the darkness with flickers of something that could be light. And we look to human ideas. We look to what songs are saying. We look to what the media is saying about this and that. And is that a substitute for God's word? It is not. Believe me, it is not. And throughout history, when we look at Reformation history, in a time when the church had grown accustomed to letting man's traditions take the place of God's word, the liberation of conscience and intellect began. It started. It had its spring with the conscious decision to trust the Bible, to let the Bible be our light and lamp. And I tell you, throughout the end of time, when you look at prophecy as it describes the end of history and stuff, that tendency, that scheme of the enemy just to kind of take out the light is going to keep increasing. And you and I have the choice every single day, will I receive the word of God as a lamp to my feet and a light into my path? To experience the kind of revival and liberation, the reformation that, that John Huss, John Wycliffe, Martin Luther experienced, that happens as we make that same choice to place full authority for faith and practice upon the word of God. And so two simple questions as we wrap up today. One is a reflection question. The other is more of an application question. Question number one, here's the reflection question. To what do you orient your life? In other words, what is your frame of reference? Upon what do you base your belief, your ideas, your sense of who you are and your significance? Whose word has final authority in your life? Is it the light of God's word or is it some feeble substitute? That's question number one. To what do you orient your life? Question number two. I think we would all say that I I don't want the feeble substitute. (laughs) I hope that we would all say that. So the question is, what will you do about that? And, And here's the direct question. Will you choose to receive this word? Will you choose to receive the word of God, to receive it as more real than your experiences, your opinions, your your past? Will you receive it as a source of truth, reality, faith, practice, and significance? Will you receive the word that is life? Is that your desire, friends? To receive the word. I want to give you permission to get really, really practical. If you're sensing that, yeah, 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 I, I want to receive the word, but how do I actually do that? Make a plan for yourself to actually read the word. Receiving the word actually begins with reading the word. I tell you, I have the Bible around me. We have it on our shelves. We have it on our phones. We have it on the internet. But if we don't read it, how can we possibly receive it? Right? Light may be shining on other people's paths, but what about mine? Maybe you're starting to ask, well, yeah, preacher, that sounds great. But every time that I've opened the Bible, I've read it. I'm like, what in the world is that talking about? Anybody been there? Yeah? Yeah! Okay. If, that, if that's you and you say, I want to receive it, but I don't know how. Then here's, here's a practic- very, very practical step. Take the Connect card that's on the bottom of your bulletin and say, I want to grow my personal relationship with Jesus. That, that's one of the options there on your Connect card. I want to grow my personal relationship with Jesus. We'd be happy to resource you. We'd give you some Bible study reading plans. Give you a, a single page that gives you some reflection questions that as you look at any passage in Scripture, you can ask these questions and actually ask them to God and have this conversation with Him where you're actually receiving the Word. We'd be happy to resource you with that. And if an email or a resource isn't enough, man, we'd be happy to coach you through that, okay? We'd love to surround you with a group. We'd love to just meet one-on-one with you. If that's you, go ahead and fill out the Connect card. Fill it out. 
There's a basket right there. You can put it there um, after church today. Two questions. To what do you orient your life? And will you receive the word? Make plans to do it. When you do, I tell you what, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. It says, remember, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Remember that group in Thessalonica that was less noble character than the Bereans? Well, apparently Paul went back to them. He went back to them, and uh, they actually received the word. It says, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. I tell you, when I started reading the Bible for myself, I began to experience change. Um, You know, some of us grew up together. (laughs) And uh, I don't know if Matt remembers this, but I used to have a really bad temper. Um, like on the tennis court. We used to play tennis together. Um, maybe I hit it pretty well from you. But anyways, I used to have a, a really bad temper. Like um, you could probably go to my parents' closet in Bakersfield, California and find some tennis rackets that are like bent out of shape um, because little Godfrey was upset. <laughs> Those are the days that, you know, if you know John McEnroe, he was, yeah, he was, anyway, he was the guy that I was watching. By beholding, he become changed. Watch out. Anyways, but as I began to read the word, you know, things like that, my temper, my, my tendency just to please people, my, my even going to the extreme of pleasing people to the extent of being dishonest, you know, all these things, God started to shape my character. He was doing a work in me as I read the word. And I, I think you're going to find that to be true too. For those of you who received the word, for those of you who have seen the light of God's word, you've seen the light of God actually change your life. And so to what will you orient your life? And will you receive the word today? If it's your desire to receive God's word, I just want to invite you to stand with me as we close in prayer. Amen. Praise the Lord. Awesome. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, right now we're standing to our feet as a simple demonstration that, you know what? The word of men, the word of this world is a poor substitute for the light of your word. God, we want to find life in your word. Some of us have been have deep experience in this and we just needed this reminder to, to realize that this, this thing that we do in the mornings and in the evenings to read the Bible is more than just a routine. This is life to us. Father, there are some of us who have no idea what that experience is but we want it so badly. Would you please grant the desire of our hearts to receive your word as it really is, not as the word of men, but the word of God, which effectively works in us who believe. May we find John 6.63 to be true in our lives, that these words are spirit and life, and we wouldn't go to anyone else because Jesus has the words of eternal life. Lord, this is our desire. May we experience reformation in our lives as we saw the reformation in history because we receive your word. In Jesus' saving and powerful name, let everyone say, amen, amen. God bless you, friends. We'd love to have you join us for potluck in just a little bit downstairs in the first floor. And stick around as we pass out the postcards. If you've got a Connect card, drop it in the box. And if you're here for the first time, make sure to walk away with a loaf of bread. God bless you. Happy Sabbath.